the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. And uh, as we uh, as we talk, as I talk and you listen, uh, the election is still going on. It's a week now uh, since Election Day, a week plus. And in some states, uh, ballots are still being counted. And in some states, uh, litigation has been commenced uh, by the Trump campaign and others. And uh, we've got this situation where Joe Biden has gone on television and announced that he won and, and, is, and is talking about staffing his his new administration. We've got the news media calling various states for Joe Biden and, and proclaiming Joe Biden to be our our president elect. And a lot of things about it. there's a certain kind of dark comedy to some aspects of this. Uh, so, for example, uh, the New York Times did a tweet where they where they said that it, it our role, it falls to us as the news media. It's our role to de- declare the uh, the winner of the presidential election, which is a complete fantasy, a complete fantasy. Uh, there is no such uh, role. There is no such power. As a matter of fact, there's not yet a single state that has certified a winner in the presidential election. And this whole rush to lean on uh, Republicans to concede the election, to lean on Donald Trump to to give a concession speech, to, to stop talking about voter fraud, which obviously existed on an industrial scale in this election, is completely fraudulent. You know, I, I, I'm old enough to remember the uh, 2000 election. Uh, where Al Gore uh, fought to the bitter end. As I recall, he actually conceded that election at one point and then took it back. And he litigated he litigated uh, all the way to the United States Supreme Court and happily ultimately failed. But I don't recall these same news outlets uh, in, in, in the year 2000 telling Al Gore, uh, you can't litigate, you can't uh, fight this out in the courts, you can't take the position that you won, even though you are behind in the vote count in Florida, which was the state that, that made the difference that year. And at every point, as I recall, Al Gore, in fact, was behind in the uh, in the vote count and ultimately lost it. But we're seeing something completely different this year. Uh, we're seeing this this uh, consensus uh, in the news media and on social media that uh, we all have to rush to judgment. We all have to go along with the Joe Biden claim that the election is over and he won it. And above all, we must not talk about voter fraud. In fact, I did a post on Powerline talking about whether there was or was not wide-scale voter fraud in uh, in Wisconsin. And it was actually a well-balanced post. I pointed out that some people had overestimated the extent of the potential fraud there because they were uh, not using the right, they were not comparing uh, the right numbers. But at the same time, I, I concluded that there were a number of indications of significant voter fraud in uh, in Wisconsin, including 
a number of precincts that had turned out of well over 100% of, of registered voters. And, and, I, and I did a post on Facebook, basically just linking to and promoting that, that Powerline post. And it was taken down by Facebook, and they put up a screenshot. I took a screenshot of it. They, they replaced my post with something saying, this has been fact-checked, this is wrong. It was fact-checked ostensibly by USA Today, and the fact-check, alleged fact-check, referred to some claim that I didn't even make uh, in my Powerline post, let alone on Facebook. So, so, so we've, we've got this phalanx of liberal forces uh, trying to pressure the rest of us into going along with the, the claim that the election is over and Joe Biden won it. Now, last night on, on Powerline, I, I wrote a post about the lawsuit that the Trump campaign and two individuals filed against the Secretary of the Commonwealth and against, I think, seven county election boards alleging widespread voter fraud uh, in that state of Pennsylvania. And um, the suit was filed on on uh, on Monday. And I've also written posts in addition to the one I mentioned about uh, possible uh, voter fraud in, in Wisconsin. I did a post about the evidence of uh, voter fraud in, in Michigan. And, and even though uh, the powers that be are trying to silence any talk about uh, whether this was or was not an honest election, it's really a matter of degree. There's no question there was there was fraud. The question is how how systemic and how widespread was it? Um, so so I want to just talk for a few minutes about what I wrote last night and what's in this complaint that the Bush campaign and, and two other individuals have, have filed in Pennsylvania. The complaint is 85 pages long. I linked to it off my Powerline post. And having practiced law for more than 40 years, uh, I think it's quite an impressive um, complaint. And it itemizes... Um, uh, voter fraud of, of a number of different kinds. And and the, probably the most significant, the most widespread, is that uh, in Allegheny and Philadelphia counties alone, uh, there was a systematic refusal to follow Pennsylvania law by allowing Republican poll watchers to observe what the mail-in vote counters were doing. And, and this is not only a longstanding tradition, but it's mandated under Pennsylvania law that the parties have to be represented uh, by, uh, by poll watchers who can observe this process and make sure that it's being done correctly and, uh, and fairly and not being done fraudulently. And what happened was that in Philadelphia, initially, they wouldn't even let the Republicans in. And then uh, the Republicans went to court and got a court order requiring that they be allowed to, to be within uh, six feet of where all these machinations were going on by the uh, mail-in vote counters. They're all Democrats, you know. And, uh, and they shut down the polls for a while and, and, and contemplated what to do. And, um, and then they opened the polls. And what they did is they let the Republican poll watchers stand uh, six feet away from the nearest table where mail-in ballots were being evaluated and counted. But then they all moved to tables that were farther away, you know, 20, 25 feet away, so that the Republicans couldn't see a thing. And so the Democrats managed to, frust- to frustrate that very elementary uh, check, you know, that tries to, to ensure that there's not massive voter fraud going on in the counting process. And as you all, I'm sure, have heard, it was Joseph Stalin who said what's important is not who casts the ballots. What's important is who counts the ballots. And in these major counties in, uh, in Pennsylvania, it was Democrats counting the ballots in secret. And in fact, those two counties alone processed 682,479 mail-in and absentee ballots without, without any review 
by any uh, Republican uh, poll watchers in direct violation of the Pennsylvania election code. And the complaint goes on and on. I, that's just a very high-level uh, review of one of the issues that's identified in the, uh, in, in, in the complaint. Another big-picture issue is that in several of the large Democrat-controlled counties, they examined the mail-in ballots before Election Day, which is illegal. That's a violation of Pennsylvania law. And, and then they examined them, and they identified ones where, the, where the, the would-be voter hadn't done it right. He hadn't signed the ballot, or for whatever reason, it didn't comply with, Philadelphia, with the Pennsylvania law. And it was going to be an invalid ballot that wouldn't be counted. And, and having identified these ballots that had not been filled out correctly, what, what these election officials did was to contact the voters and, and tell them, hey, you, you, you messed up your mail-in ballot. It's not going to count. We'll help you. We'll walk through it with you so that you get a valid a ballot submitted. Again, totally and completely illegal. And, and you know, this, this happened in, in, in counties where the overwhelming majority of the, of the votes being cast um, – were for Democrats. And then there are many other uh, smaller violations of, of the law, smaller instances of, of voter fraud uh, alleged in this, in this complaint. And it's all backed up by, by numerous affidavits. And so the question, in my view, is not was there voter fraud on a large scale in, in several of these key states, including Pennsylvania, including Michigan, including Wisconsin. The question is not was there voter fraud. There certainly was. Uh, was there violation of election laws? There certainly was. Was it a corrupt election, corruptly managed by big city Democratic Party machines? It certainly was. The real question is what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? And it's a big problem. One of the things you learn in law school is that there are times when there is a wrong for which there is no remedy. And so, for example, in the Pennsylvania case, one of the uh, items of relief that the Trump campaign is asking for is for none of these um, 682,000 ballots that got counted without any observation uh, by Republican poll watchers in violation of the law, that none of those 682,000 ballots should be counted. Well, that is, a, a, in some sense, an appropriate remedy, and there's a, there's a certain logic to it, but I can tell you right now that there's no court that is going to order that those 682,000 votes all be disqualified. I mean, it simply isn't going to happen. And so that is the dilemma we face. Uh, the evidence of voter fraud is overwhelming. Uh, quantifying it is inherently very difficult, if not impossible. And so is there any practical relief that any court can grant to the Trump campaign? That's really going to be the question. Much more here on the Dan Proft Show when we return from these messages. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We are joined now by Julie Kelly, political commentator and senior contributor to American Greatness and the author of Disloyal Opposition, How the Never Trump Right Tried and Failed to Take Down the President. Julie, thanks for being on the program. Hey, John. Thanks for having me on. Julie, you've got a really interesting piece at uh, American Greatness about this COVID 
vaccine and and the timing of the announcement and 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 the PR that has accompanied the, that announcement. To, to tell our listeners about that. So, as your listeners probably know, um, Pfizer released the results of their phase three study into the coronavirus vaccine, which showed that it was ninety percent effective in preventing people from contracting uh, COVID nineteen. Um, So that was announced Monday after the election, after Pfizer's CEO had told the president and the public for weeks that he expected the results would be released sometime the end of October. What I write about is how it looks like Pfizer, after meeting with the FDA, slow walked, finishing up their research and then delaying their announcement until after the election Furthermore, it looks like uh, Pfizer's people notified the Biden campaign before they told the president that the information would be released to the public on Monday morning. And Julie, I believe a Pfizer spokesperson actually said, well, no, this was not a part of Operation Warp Speed, which is completely false. I think they later corrected that. And it certainly was. Uh, Yeah. Talk talk about that a little bit. Operation Warp Speed. what, What was it and how does this relate to that? Right. And that was really also another outrageous aspect of Pfizer's handling of this. Operation Warp Speed was the president's program he announced in May, um, which he was attempting to work. It was a public-private partnership with pharmaceutical uh, companies, as well as, you know, Health and Human Services, the Department of Defense. His goal was to have 300 million doses of a coronavirus vaccine by January of 2021. So they brought down all kinds of regulatory barriers. Usually, according to one chart, it takes more than five years before a vaccine goes through all the regulatory hurdles and it's approved and distributed to the public. Under Operation Warp Speed, it would be 14 months. So Pfizer and all of these companies really benefited from Operation Warp Speed. And then an official at Pfizer had the nerve to tell the New York Times on Monday that this was not part of Operation Warp Speed. That was a, a, a ploy to try to take away any credit that the president could claim for facilitating this vaccine. So, yes, you're right. Uh, after there was pressure, I actually contacted Pfizer as well. Uh, a spokesman came out and said, well, you know, the government didn't pay for our research and development, but yes, we were part of Operation Warp Speed. But of course, the narrative had already been set. And the media and Democrats, you know, tried to deny the president any credit for what he did to to push this vaccine along. Now, Julie, if Pfizer had made that announcement in the normal course of business instead of waiting until the day after the election, if voters, when they went to the polls, knew that a vaccine had completed that stage three testing and had been found to be 90 percent effective against COVID and is going to be distributed to the public, I'm not sure what the exact timetable is, but soon, right? I think by the end of the year, there's going to be many millions of doses of this stuff out there. If, if people had known that when they went to the polls, I think it's quite likely that the result of the election could have been different. Well, it certainly would have get, given the president bragging rights. At the very same time, of course, remember, the media was ratcheting up, uh, you know, scaremongering about a second surge. And, you know, we the counters were up and there's, you know, a million cases of COVID every day. So that would have contradicted that kind of panic that the media was trying to set in again about uh, COVID-19. What's really uh, infuriating, John, is, 
Pfizer CEO made a public announcement October 27th um, that they were changing the terms of their original uh, study that would determine the success rate. So then what we found out from further reporting is after they met with the FDA, they put samples in storage so they could delay finishing up the, uh, the study. And guess when they started retesting the samples? Wednesday, the day after the election. So this was all gamesmanship by Pfizer. Um, of course, we know Scott Gottlieb, who is, you know, I call him a panic pimp for coronavirus. He's a board member of Pfizer. He's been all over the media for months talking about um, coronavirus and, and, you know, scaring people about a virus that has, you know, 99.7% survival rate. And so he got what he wanted. Pfizer got what they wanted. They signed a $1.95 billion contract with the U.S. government in July for the initial 100 million doses. But to try to discredit the president for his, and his team for what they did really uh, is, is pretty outrageous. You know, Julie, a lot of people don't understand that big business in general is on the side of the Democrats. And in right. fact, I think one of the things you said in your in your American Greatness piece is that if you look at campaign contributions, you know, big pharma, uh, you know, supports Democrats. And, and we all know the big pharma contributed heavily, uh, you know, lobbied heavily in favor of Obamacare. They did. And also, John, um, you know, Joe Biden had his cancer initiative, the uh, charity that he created after his son died of brain cancer. Um, but that really was, as all things Biden, a way to uh, benefit themselves, his family. And what it was was a conduit for the Bidens in 2017 and 2018 to build up um, his relationships with the healthcare industry, including big pharma. So um, you're exactly right. Most of the donations went to Democrats and Team Biden. But what's, you know, so then Joe Biden gets to make the announcement Monday morning that his team was alerted Sunday by these pharmaceutical uh, executives um, trying to give him credit and deny the president. So this is what we're in store for. If Joe Biden is indeed uh, officially elected as president, we can expect a lot more of these backroom deals and misleading the public about what the truth is. We've got about a minute and a half left here, Julie. I just want to touch on one other thing, which is the whole anti-vaxxer attitude that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, you know, Kamala says, well, if the, if the vaccine comes out under the Trump administration, I won't take it. And then we have the spectacle of Andy Cuomo on television talking about, well, let's block distribution of the vaccine until Trump is out of office. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. It just is one more example, John, of how this virus has been so heavily politicized and really weaponized against the American people. Andrew Cuomo is a clown. He should be un- he should be under investigation. <laughs> he should be in a- involved in a criminal trial for how he handled not just the outbreak in his state, but how his state was a super spreader for the rest of the country. And they could you can actually see the data how New York seeded outbreaks in other parts of the country. But here he is now threatening to deny this to his own people. It, you know, it just is another way that the Democrats are weaponizing. They don't care about people's health. They don't care about this virus. As long as they can use it for a cudgel against the president and the Republicans, they'll go to any extreme to do it. Well, I think what we've seen here, Julie, with Pfizer and with the Biden campaign uh, is is a preview of the kind of coziness and, and corporate cronyism that we are going to see under a Biden administration. We've got just 15 seconds left, Julie. Quick comment. 
I think that's exactly right. And the media will go along with it. They won't tell the American people the truth. They will go with whatever narrative, big business, big pharma, and Joe Biden tells them to tell the people. We'll be right back with more after these messages. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We are talking with Julie Kelly, senior contributor for American Greatness and the author of Disloyal Opposition, How the Never Trump Right Tried and Failed to Take Down the President. Julie, I want to talk this segment about the subject of your book. That is the Never Trump Right. To me, the never Trumpers are one of the weirdest uh, phenomena of, of recent political times. They really are. They are. Um, so thank you for mentioning my book. My book sort of details the how they originated um, five years ago, really, after Trump announced and how they just clung to this irrational uh, hatred for Donald Trump, which has also manifested itself in hatred for any Republican lawmaker who dares to support him. And of course, just, you know, tens of millions of Republican voters who still defend the president. Um, And so they're out now, as you probably see, John, they are conceding this election. People like Mitt Romney and Ben Sass congratulating President-elect Biden. They want the president to back off of his lawsuits and just easily hand this over to Joe Biden, which is pretty standard fare for never Trumpers. And when we say never Trumpers, of course, we're referring not just, you know, not to the Democrats who oppose Trump, as they do all Republicans, but to the but to the people who claim at least to be Republicans, claim at least to be conservatives. And yet for the last, you know, four plus, going on five years, they've harbored this just crazed hatred for President Trump, refused to acknowledge any of his many achievements, and uh, we saw him active again in the in the 2020 election. That's exactly right. And not only, John, were they rooting for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to win, which is preposterous if you consider yourself a Republican or a conservative, um, they want that they want the Republicans to lose the Senate. They wanted the Republicans to lose the House of Representatives in 2018, which, of course, they did. They oppose Republican governors. I mean, they are going straight Democrat ticket. This isn't even about the president anymore. But this is also to keep their shtick going. Right, John? I mean, who in their right mind would ever have Jennifer Rubin on as a guest unless she was a reliable mouthpiece to bash and say the most vile things about President Trump and his supporters. You know, same for Mitt Romney. No one would really pay attention to the junior senator from Utah unless he was constantly out like he was on the Sunday shows this past weekend talking about how dangerous Donald Trump is and basically congratulating Joe Biden. So this is their shtick. It's how they keep their you know, columns at the Washington Post and their gigs on CNN. And obviously, in the case of Mitt Romney or Ben Sass, you know, trying to get some attention to otherwise unimpressive political careers. 
Yeah, one of the interesting things about the Never Trump movement, if you could even call it that, is how unsuccessful it's been. You know, President Trump, I think, got 90 percent of the Republican vote in 2016 after four years of Never Trump activity. I think he got 93 percent of the Republican vote this November. So these these are basically people who have no constituency. They don't. And you exactly pointed that out. Donald Trump got more Republican votes in 20, not just raw votes, but also in 2016, according to exit polls, 8 percent of Republicans. Republicans voted for Hillary Clinton. In 2020, only 6% of Republicans, according to a lot of exit polls, voted for Joe Biden. So he got a bigger share of the Republican base than he did even in 2016. So the idea that these never Trump Republicans thought that they could flip, uh, you know, enough for Republicans to vote for Joe Biden, it didn't happen. I call it the reverse Midas touch like a Bill Crystal, whatever he predicts or whatever he works on, the exact opposite happens. And we have this other example today. In any other industry, John, these guys would be run out, you know, they they should be, you know, flipping burgers, or, and not to demean people who flip burgers, but they should not be in the political business at all. They are wrong 110% of the time, um, yet they get this outsized share of attention from the media because they act as their you know, they help give them their daily fix of, of Trump hate. We've got just over a minute left, Julie, but I want to raise one more point about the Never Trumpers, and that is that unsuccessful, impotent as they are, they remain hateful. And we've seen yeah. this in the wake of the 2020 election, and they just it's just reprehensible. The so-called Lincoln Project, which is misnamed, you know, like the communist Lincoln Brigade in the Spanish Civil War, you know, the Lincoln Project right. actually dox the lawyers who are representing the Trump campaign in the Pennsylvania lawsuit. It's just shocking. It did. And they were forced to delete that tweet. And I think that they were in Twitter timeout for 12 hours, which is usually the case. But these are just venal people. You talk about Rick Wilson, Steve Schmidt. Not only are they political losers and they've damaged every campaign they ever worked on, um, but they're just they're nasty human beings. And, uh, you know, you now see what's fun, John, is to see the backlash against them from the Democrats. Now that they've played their role of useful idiot, they failed in their mission that they said that they would take. They spent probably a hundred million dollars of Democratic money to fail. Um, you now see Democrats saying, hey, thanks, but no thanks. Buzz off. And so they are in political no man's land where they belong. Well, at least we, I think we've seen the last of the never Trumpers. Julie Kelly, thank you so much for being on the Dan Prof Show. Thanks, John. On the The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. And one of the themes we're going to be coming back to over and over again on the on the program is the 2020 presidential election. And uh, was it honest? Uh, do we actually know? Uh, who won that election? Will we ever know who won that election? And and one of the problems we, we wrestle with is that voter fraud by its nature uh, is easy to commit and hard to remedy. Even if we have good reason to believe that voter fraud occurred, it is very difficult, if not impossible, depending on the circumstances, to go back and identify the specific ballots that were cast fraudulently and pull them out of the total. Uh, most of the time, once a ballot is cast, once the ballot goes through the machine or, or whatever, it, it's counted and, and that's it. 
Uh, you may find evidence later that there were a number of fraudulent ballots, uh, but uh, what are you going to do about it? It, it? it may be simply impossible. So to just take one example of that, uh, this morning the Trump campaign started releasing lists of dead people who voted in Georgia. And, um, and, and they actually sent out copies of the obituary notices of three or four Georgians who died uh, in one case very recently, 2019, other cases back in, you know, 2006 or something, but been deceased for a number of years, but who are on record as having voted uh, in, in this uh, 2020 election. And of course, you know, the handful that they've identified so far are just the uh, tip of the iceberg. This, this kind of investigation goes on, and I'm sure there are many more to come. But but again, the question becomes, okay, so so obviously some fraudulent ballots got cast there. But again, the question is, what are we going to do about it? And 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 it may be that there's nothing that can be done about it. If if somebody showed up at the polls and and checked in and, and identified himself as one of these deceased people, got a ballot, was allowed to vote, you know, there, there's no record of, of of how that vote was cast. You know, and I know it was cast for Joe Biden, but you can't prove that. And if it was a mail-in ballot, I think it varies from state to state. There may or may not be a paper trail that would that would allow us to know at this point how these uh, these uh, deceased people voted. And so and so obviously that's an instance where where voter fraud occurred. Uh, but it, it's probably an instance that that you, you can't do anything about. And in any event, if you have to try to overturn a result in a state uh, one vote at a time, identifying specific illegal votes and proving uh, that they went for Joe Biden and not Donald Trump, it's impossible. In the time that we have here between now and when the Electoral College meets in in December or when the next president is sworn in in January, it, it, it simply can't be done. And and one of the things we're dealing with is this mass hostility in the press toward any effort to point out widespread corruption in the 2020 election. And I talked about that earlier in the program uh, in the context of Pennsylvania. We might come back to that later. But another state where the Trump campaign uh, and others have commenced litigation is Michigan. And, uh, and uh, on the 9th of November... Ronna McDaniel, a GOP chairwoman, gave a press conference, and, and she unveiled 131 affidavits from people in Michigan and 2,800 incident reports documenting fraud and various kinds of irregularities in the election just in the state of Michigan. And, and there are a number of things going on there. One one thing that happened in Michigan was the same as what happened in Pennsylvania. That is, Republican poll watchers were were kept out of the areas where mail-in ballots were being uh, evaluated and approved and counted, so that they couldn't observe, contrary to uh, to Michigan law. And that's the same kind of systemic voter fraud that we saw um, in Pennsylvania. And so. Um, Lawsuits have been filed in Michigan, and as I said, Ronald McDaniel gave a press conference to a, to a highly skeptical group of reporters. And, and I quoted some of this exchange in my, uh, in my post on Powerline a couple of days ago. Uh, one of the reporters said, well, do you know that fraudulent votes were actually cast? And, and Ronald McDaniel came back and pointed out that a whistleblower in Michigan has, has sworn in an affidavit that he or she was told by a supervisor 
to backdate ballots that came in after the legal deadline. This is something that has happened in other states as well. There's a statutory deadline, and typically it'll say that the ballot, if it's mailed in, absentee or whatever, has got to be received by a certain time on Election Day. And so one thing that was happening in Michigan as well as other states is that Democrats in the urban areas that they control – um, were, were backdating ballots to make it look like they came in on time when, in fact, uh, they didn't. And, uh, and Ronald McDaniel went on to say that they have affidavits uh, from eyewitnesses who saw poll workers encouraging voters to vote a straight Democratic ticket and even poll workers going into the booths with voters to help them vote for uh, Democrats. And obviously all of those activities are illegal. And so having having laid all that out for, for this group of Democratic Party reporters, the next question that came from a member of the press was, do you have any evidence you can show us today that illegal ballots were cast? <laughs> and, and, you know, uh, McDaniel um uh, replied, uh, tried to keep her temper, that backdating ballots is illegal, and that would mean that those votes were cast uh, illegally. And the reporters are kind of scratching their heads like they don't quite grasp that concept. Well, I don't think reporters are that dumb. I think that um, if 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 the claim was being made, if, if, if Donald Trump was the apparent winner of this election and the claim was being made that he had benefited from voter fraud, I think that every one of these newspapers would be scouring states like Michigan and Pennsylvania and Georgia, scouring them, sending out investigative reporters looking for evidence of voter fraud on behalf of the Trump campaign and, and publishing it in the headlines uh, three inches high. Uh, but instead of that, we are, we, are, we are confronted by the solid facts of, of the TV networks, the newspapers, the Associated Press, the cable news channels, including Fox News now, and, uh, and social media. If you talk about voter fraud on, on Facebook, you get censored, as I, as I was, uh, talking about the potential evidence for voter fraud in, in Wisconsin. And, uh, and, and, and censorship going on on, uh, on Twitter as well. And so, and so voter fraud is the, is the crime, the political crime that apparently uh, we, 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 we must not see, we must not hear about, and we must not uh, speak about. We will be back with more after these messages. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We are in the midst of the 2020 presidential election, and not only presidential, of course, Senate, House, and so forth. And we don't know yet exactly how it's going to end, but certainly uh, the majority view is that um, President Trump's lawsuits, however mer- meritorious they may be, however much voter fraud may actually have occurred, are probably going to fall short. Probably he's not going to be able to succeed in getting enough votes turned around or thrown out um, to, to change the results in the, in the, in the key states. And so, so I do think we need to be thinking about where we go from here, assuming that that is the outcome. And certainly I, I think President Trump could, should fight this to the bitter end, and, and there's some chance he might succeed. A number of people have said that, um, assuming that Republicans keep control of the Senate, as I think they will, 
there should be a Senate investigation of of the 2020 election. And I think that the, the Senate majority, under the direction of Mitch McConnell, should carry out a real investigation. And they got plenty of time. They had plenty of time to do it, uh, two years before the next election. And they should carry out a real investigation. And they should identify as many uh, as much fraud as they can and as many sloppy election uh, practices as they can that enable voter fraud. This whole mail-in ballot uh, approach has been a complete fiasco. Everybody knew it was going to enable a lot of fraud, a lot of irregularities, and it has. There's no doubt about it. So we should see an extensive Senate investigation that lays this out and lays the groundwork for putting pressure on the states to clean up their act, to to – uh, tighten their procedures to to get away from you know large volumes of of mail in or absentee ballots uh, uh, to to stop uh, violating their own laws uh, with respect to allowing Republican poll watchers in Democrat controlled cities like um, you know, like Philadelphia and and Detroit. And I think if we get a a Senate report that really spells out that really documents the the extensive voter fraud that we know happened, that we know happened uh, in 2020 in states like Philadelphia, like Michigan, like Wisconsin, like Georgia, and other states as well. And, 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 and we, we know about voter fraud in other states. We just haven't been talking about it because those haven't been the key swing states that, that uh, dictated the result of the election. But the fact is the Democrats with their big city machines have been living off voter fraud going back to Tammany Hall days nearly 150 years ago. This is not a new phenomenon. It's been going on for a long time, and it, and it occurs overwhelmingly, not exclusively, but overwhelmingly in these Democrat-controlled blue cities. And, and I think one silver lining of the 2020 election is that maybe it gives us an opportunity to address this issue of election integrity once and for all and see if we can't shine the spotlight on, on voter fraud and bring about real reform in the states so that going forward, at least we can have some assurance that we're having clean elections and we can have confidence in the outcomes of those elections. So so Mitch McConnell, assuming you're the majority leader come, uh, come January, let's have a thorough investigation of what happened in this year's election. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We are joined now by Caleb Lataru. Real Clear Media Fellow and Senior Fellow at the George Washington University Center for Cyber and Homeland Security. Caleb, thanks for being on the program. Thanks for having me today. Caleb, in the run-up to the 2020 election, you were writing a lot about, um, about the role of social media in our public life, our political life. And, and I want to talk about that, maybe break it into, into, into two elements. Uh, first, talk about social media uh, in the run-up to the 2020 election. And then I want to spend some time talking about what's happened since the election, because I think, you know, that, that's a whole other topic in itself. But, but, but let's start by just getting your thoughts on what were we seeing from social media, Facebook, Twitter, 
YouTube uh, in the run-up to the 2020 election? You know, this has really been a fascinating year from the standpoint of this is kind of the year that social media took off the gloves. You know, they've been very hesitant, you know, up to now, uh, you know, for the first maybe decade of social media, they really were handoff. They just kind of said, look, uh, we let people use our platforms to say what they want. And, you know, they, they really positioned themselves as kind of the 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 different, you know, the, the free speech. I mean, remember, Twitter was the free speech way of the free speech party. Uh, you know, Twitter famously wrote that letter to the U.S. Congress, I think, in 2015, when they said, look, you need to really clamp down on terrorism use of your platform. And Twitter wrote back and said, uh, you know, we stand for all speech, no matter how abhorrent we think it is, people have a right to speak. And it was really you know, this idea of the ultimate place of free speech. And then somewhere along the line, in the last few years, that all changed. And and it kind of accelerated, but they were still very hands-off when it came to the U.S. politicians, especially people like uh, you know President Trump and members of Congress. They were very deferential, and this is the year that they sort of lost their fear. And you know, for the first time, you start seeing them actively, uh, you know, flagging uh, tweets by the by uh, Trump. You saw them uh, start hiding those tweets behind the displays. You saw them obviously go after Tom Cotton and you know uh, say that they were going to you know remove his account. You saw. All of the, you know, kind of this, this, the, the fear essentially disappeared, and they waited in full force to say, look, we define what it's okay for people to see and say online. And, uh, you know, and it, you can kind of see it from two sides. You can see from the COVID side, uh, you know, there was kind of this desire to say, well, you know, it, it, you, you, you want to clamp down on some of the real, you know, crazy things that are out there. Like, you know, you see these crazy things on social media, you know, drink a hundred gallons of water and magically you'll be cured or, you know, uh, eat all this stuff. And so you did see this kind of this, you know, you, there, there was this desire to clamp down when it came to COVID. But the problem then is that, you know, that at the same time that came at this, this same moment when they decide to go after all political speech. And that, to me, is this really fascinating thing. There's, there's not this fear anymore to say, look, when the president says something we disagree, that gets hidden. And I think one of the challenges as we kind of look forward is that right now everyone's cheering that on, and they're saying, fantastic, good job. But, you know, I keep pointing people to Elizabeth Warren. When she ran that ad saying, look, Facebook is a monopoly. We've got to break it up. That ad got deleted really quickly. And, you know, officially it was because it was a logo issue. But, you know, just remember that right now there's essentially the things that, that you don't like. Just remember that you, that by normalizing this idea, you're essentially making it okay for them to censor anything they dislike with. Yeah, I would say that 2020 is the year when the social media uh, giants came out of the closet. I mean, they are full bore for the Democratic Party. And in the election, they, they favored Joe Biden. They did, they did everything they could to put their thumbs on the scale to help Joe Biden win. Uh, but it's not just Biden. Uh, it's the Democratic Party up and down the line. Now, do you think that's a, a fair assessment or does that overstate the case? It's a fascinating question because it's something I wrestle with a lot is when you go through this, like the Hunter Biden's a perfect example of that, where there's so many questions. Of, like Twitter was, that was, I think, a perfect example where Twitter initially came out and said, look, we have a policy that says anything that's been hacked, uh, we don't allow posting. Now, of course, there's a lot of questions about whether that really was hacked or that was indeed a laptop. But then people pointed out, well, your policy there says that news news was a U.S. nation nation in it. Well, if they redact the phone numbers, can they put it back up? Well, no, there's some other issues there. And they just kept shifting the explanations. And then finally, eventually, uh, when when other news organizations like The Times and all these others came forward and people started pointing out that 
you know, this would affect the tax, you know, this would affect the Times putting out the tax stuff. There was a lot of, uh, there, there was essentially this pullback. Uh, and uh, then they said, okay, we'll, we'll let the Hunter stuff go. I think that's a fascinating question because, you know, I don't think it's purposeful. I go back and forth. And, and I think part of this is the fact that when you are, I mean, again, Silicon Valley skews extremely liberal. And when you live in a filter bubble where you only hear from people around you, you don't even see, like, to, to a lot of people, I think, at the companies, this Hunter Biden thing was another Russian fake news story without even spending the time to say, well, wait a second, does this, you know, and is this the same thing as, you know, when Hillary's emails came out or, you know, Trump's tax returns or any of these things? Where do you kind of position this? Well, I think you give a little too much credit. I, I think that, you know, as an observer of social media, I see the censorship all going in one direction. You know, I don't see any any censorship of stuff that is coming from the left. I'll give you an example, Caleb, of, of something that happened to me. I am the president of a think tank, a Minnesota's conservative think tank called Center of the American Experiment. We did a an online program uh, in the summer with Heather McDonald, and it followed the George Floyd riots and so forth. And uh, and she walked through all of the data about uh, about race, about crime, about policing, and it definitively shows that it simply isn't true. The narrative that the police are out to get black people and they're disproportionately involved in in violent episodes with police and so on, it simply isn't true. And 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 it's about a forty minute presentation, you know, very professional, very well done with uh, charts and graphs and statistics. And and no sooner had we uploaded the the final, uh, it was actually a live stream, and, and no sooner was the live stream completed uh, than it was taken down by uh, by YouTube. Well, we then uh, uploaded the the actual video, the MP4, whatever it was, and and uh, I think initially they took it down. I, I objected. They restored it, but then they age restricted it. And, and and if you go look at it now, it's got this big, big sign, you know, sort of proceed at your own risk. You know, the YouTube community has determined that this may not be suitable, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's this middle-aged lady give, giving statistics about crime, you know, and policing. And and I didn't really understand until this happened what the point of that is. And and that, that video has got about 100,000 views on YouTube, but it should have had 300,000, 400,000 by now. And and the point of that is that if it's age restricted, it is invisible to anybody who hasn't signed in to YouTube because they don't know how old you are, and so it doesn't show up in in search results or, or anything else. It's invisible, and so and so you know that's an example of where data, you know, statistics that are inconvenient to the left uh, got censored by YouTube. I, do you see any similar censorship of, of stuff coming from the left? See, to me, I think one of the things that is really fascinating, you know, I, I tend to, because so much of my work is global, you know, I tend to kind of step above the right versus left or this versus that and kind of look at what are the higher order patterns that we're seeing here. And, you know, one of those was, you know, again, Facebook, for example, uh, you know, intervened. I think it was, was it Sri Lanka, one of the countries that had an election a couple of years ago, uh, you know, they actively intervened in that election to say, this political party we deem to be dangerous. We're going to severely curtail what they're saying, fact check everything, subject them to real harsh scrutiny. This party we agree with, we're not going to really bother their commentary much. And what was interesting at the time period, I said, look, you're going to see this in the U.S. soon. And, you know, part of it, I, I think, so like, here's a good example. When The Guardian got its hands a couple of years ago on Facebook's moderation guidelines, 
what came out of that was the fact that, for example, anti-Semitism was allowed. Uh, uh, what was it? Uh, glorifying, uh, glorifying violence against women was allowed. Glorifying violence against children was allowed. All these things were allowed on the official written documentation. And that caused this huge public outcry of, well, wait a second, we didn't know this. Uh, and eventually the company then had to make some changes. And so for me, I think one of the things that's really missing here is, is transparency. That, um, you know, I think there's, I think there's sort of two things here. One is that Silicon Valley is very, very homogeneous. You know, if you, if you, you know, you, you look at the political donations, you look at, um, you know, kind of the, the commentary coming out of the valley, um, everyone looks alike, they think alike, they, you know, it's kind of this hive mind. And the challenge of that, when you sit in that bubble, you don't really realize what's happening in the rest of the world. And, you know, and this, of course, you know, has been famously in terms of how the social media companies have intervened in other countries abroad. And they've had a lot of pushback in terms of, you know, the ch- in terms of kind of bringing their views towards other cultures and other parts of the world that are different than Silicon Valley. Um, but I think one of the challenges there is that, you know, when you live in that world, when you, everyone are like you, you live in this bubble, you don't need to experience anyone else outside that bubble. It becomes very hard. You kind of see everything else as wrong, false, you know, quote unquote, fake news and evil and all this. You don't Caleb, even realize we're, we're, that. We're running up against a break here, uh, Caleb. Can you stay with us for another segment? Yes, it's great. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We are talking with Caleb Lataro, Real Clear Media Fellow and Senior Fellow at the George Washington University Center for Cyber and Homeland Security. And Caleb, before the before the break, you were talking about the fact that Silicon Valley is really a monoculture uh, politically and socially. And and sometimes people who who only interact with people who who think the same way they do don't don't even realize uh, that that their perspective isn't shared by everybody. And and it and and it's not just you know uh, what's obviously right. It's 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 a it's a particular point on the political spectrum. You know, this is this has always been one of the challenges with Silicon Valley, especially now, because, you know, they don't just control speech here in the U.S. They control it globally. Every, you know, people in every country of the world are subjected to one set of rules. And Silicon Valley's view, you know, if you set aside right versus left, you'll look at everything from capitalism to, uh, you know, to free speech, to all the different things that, you know, Silicon Valley has a specific view of what it wants the world to be like, and it projects that view through these rules. And, you know, and that, that creates a lot of tension across the world. And, you know, for me, I think one of the things that's really missing about this is the idea of transparency. Um, this idea that, you know, if you think about, uh, you know, every day, Facebook and Twitter are removing things right and left from their platforms. But to the general public, we have no idea what they're doing. Uh, you know, so for every time that someone cheers when, a, a, when one of Trump's tweets is taken down, uh, you know, how often is, are they taking down tweets that say, you know, Twitter should be broken up. Facebook is a monopoly. Uh, you know, this should happen. We should regulate them. We should remove 230. Uh, you know, how often are those things being removed? We have no idea. So to me, if we had that, you know, if, you, if there was some kind of database that tracked 
all of the takedowns that they're doing every day that allowed us to really understand what are they? Because maybe we agree. We say, hey, you know, as a society, this sounds about light. This sounds about light. But wait a second, you know, look back to when The Guardian got its hands on those rules from a couple of years ago. Anti-Semitism is allowed. Violence against women and children, totally okay. In society, we might say, well, you know, I don't agree with that. And so I think once you have that, that visibility into the power of these companies, I think people, they just kind of accept that things happen. They don't, you know, they accept, well, the companies are moderating. I assume that they're doing good. Um, we really need to have that visibility so the public can say, wait a second here. Uh, you know, we need to get a handle on this. Of course, when you talk about visibility, there's several things going on, right? I mean, one thing is when they actually, you know, delete a post, you know, take something down. Uh, or, you know, overtly fact check it. But but then you have the whole question of how the algorithms work and there's allegations of shadow banning. What, what, what do you make of that? Is shadow banning a real thing, for example, on Twitter? And if so, how, how do you make that transparent? You know, that's, that's one of the funny things is that, you know, uh, Twitter has always said we don't shadow ban but and then they acknowledge doing exactly what shadow banning is. So they just they basically right. say the word isn't real, but we do the things. And then, of course, when the Twitter hack happened earlier this year and the internal console displays that Twitter's own administrators used, and he saw those buttons right there for that, you know, this idea of visibility, I mean, because that's one of the, the kind of ways that the company censor without it being as overtly visible. Um, you know, if they, for example, delete your post, you realize what's happened. If everything looks normal to you and nobody sees your post, you just assume, I, I guess this didn't go viral. And that's what companies like China or countries like China, you know, China learned a long time ago. If you actually remove something and delete it, that you empower that person because they feel, my God, I'm so powerful that the country, the government had to delete my speech. If instead you simply make sure it doesn't go anywhere or in, in Congress, you pour this vitriol at that person, cause them to self-censor, well, that's a far more powerful way of controlling a population. And that's kind of what we're seeing here with the social media companies is, you know, they delete things, but there's also the, you know, these, these quieter things they can do in terms of, um, you know, uh, affecting the circulation, like with Trump's tweets, they not just hit them, but they made it very difficult for those to go viral and, you know, intervened. And I think what 37% of his tweets since the election have been, you know, subject to that policy. And, you know, it's a fascinating thing when you say a private company is now censoring the president of the United States. And most importantly, remember the court's rule, President Trump's tweets are government property. That's why he and people, the court's rule, his, treat, his Twitter account is government property. And that raises the question, then, how can a private company then decide what the government is allowed to say and not say, regardless of what you feel about whether his tweets should be there or not, or whether, you know, you agree with some of the things he say, at the end of the result, set him aside and just say, should a private company be deciding what the president is allowed to say and not say? And that's, a, to me, a fascinating question. Well, so, so you've talked, uh, Caleb, about transparency, and I think that that's a pretty easy case to make, although I'm still not quite sure how you make shadow banning, for example, transparent. I mean, they could publish an algorithm, but nobody would understand it, right? I, I don't know. But, but, but beyond that, Caleb, you know, the, the, what, what else should, should anything more be done about, about the power of these social media, really monopolies in legal terms? And if so, and if so what? Break them up, regulate them? What, what, what do you think? Well, you know, and there's also this, this thing now that the companies are trying to move away from human moderators and use AI to do all their moderation work. And, you know, there's a, there's a really well understood biases in these AI systems. 
Um, and those effect, those biases specifically penalize the very voices that they're trying to empower. And so there's a lot of problems with, you know, especially as the companies are moving to these, these AI systems where even they don't know why a decision was made. And, you know, I think, I think really as we, as we look forward, I think transparency is the first step because that allows the public to come together and say, you know, actually, yeah, they get it wrong. Because, you know, to me, I look at it and say, look, if you're getting it right 99.999% of the time and there's a handful of cases per day that you get wrong, maybe that's not so bad. But if we come together as society and say, hey, wait a second, it's more like, you know, 40% right and 60% wrong, then we have to start asking, what is the damage done by that? And, you know, there's this juxtaposition. You know, again, a couple, five years ago, it was, uh, you know, Twitter said, look, ISIS has a right. ISIS terrorists have a right to use our platform. And uh, we're going to staunchly defend that. We hate what they say, but they have a right to say it. And today we're on the opposite, which is we've got to remove absolutely everything that uh, is bad. And, you know, it all comes down to in a vibrant, diverse society, defining what's bad and what's good. Uh, you know, remember, our founders, we went through this. We had a big push in the early part of, the society, of our own country to say we should make certain types of speech illegal. And we learned, you know, there was the, I forgot the name of the law that uh, Congress tried to pass it that actually tried to make it illegal to criticize government, even in our The Alien and Sedition Act. <laughs> there you go. Right. And, you know, and that's the thing that we forget that, you know, because we say, well, this is good. We want this. Well, hey, remember, if you're happy, you know, now, just remember, in, uh, in the next election, if the Republicans take over, would you be happy with the government being able to set your speech? And, and that's what I always tell people is, you know, right now, you know, if, if, if the Democrats own, uh, you know, have the White House, have Congress and say, we want the ability to set the speech for the nation. Just remember, in another election, if the Republicans control Congress and the White House, would you want them to have that power? If the answer is no, then you probably don't want to be setting these types of speech policies. But again, that's part of why they're using social media companies, because they're not subject to the First Amendment. They don't have to. They're not subject to any laws. They can remove things without recourse and decide. And so I've always said it's kind of like outsourcing the, you know, we're able to use social media companies to outsource the rules that we want to apply to free speech and apply globally, too. And, you know, I think the first step is transparency. The next step then is once you have those results, you can start building public support to say, here are the steps we need to do to to rein in this power uh, in the following ways. All right. That's a good place to leave it. Thank you, Caleb Lataro, for being on the Daft, on the Dan Prof Show, and we will be right back. Listen to podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. And we are joined now by Daniel McCarthy, director of the Robert Novak Journalism Fellowship Program at the Fund for American Studies and editor of Modern Age, a conservative review. Daniel, thanks for being on the program. Thanks for having me on, John. Daniel, you've got an item at the American Conservative, which uh, brings some welcome optimism to those of us who are conservatives in the wake of an election which seems to have been uh, mixed results at best. And maybe a good place to start is just with the title of your piece, which is 
liberalism loses with Biden. Uh, Daniel, explain to our listeners what you mean by that. Well, you know, there are the obvious ways in which if Joe Biden winds up being sworn in as president come January, he's going to have one of the weakest hands of any president in 20 years. He, uh, you know, not going to have the Senate. He will have a reduced uh, House majority. But beyond those obvious elements, the fact that this election was all about Donald Trump and about COVID and the recession, it was not really about enthusiasm for Joe Biden. And if you look at exit polls, you see that about 70 percent of Joe Biden's voters said they weren't really voting for Joe Biden. They were voting against Donald Trump. And of course, when you have a recession, you have the odds really very strongly against the incumbent president. In fact, no incumbent president has won re-election with a recession since uh, McKinley back in 1900. And of course, he was assassinated shortly after that happened. So there's a sense in which, you know, even if Joe Biden is able to get the vote counts he wants and becomes president in January, he's going to be sort of an anti-president. He's not really someone that people were enthusiastic for, someone who has an agenda. He was rather simply a response to this horrible COVID crisis and recession and a certain kind of enthusiastic liberal hatred of Donald Trump, but not really an enthusiasm or an endorsement of Joe Biden himself and a Joe Biden agenda, because Biden's going to have a very divided Democratic Party where the Sanders people and the identity politics people are not 100 percent comfortable with Joe Biden, who has, you know, a very different persona back, you know, going back uh, almost 50 years in his government service from what the Democratic Party is today. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. And of course, the campaign was just weird in that the Democrats seemingly had no desire to wheel Joe Biden out of his basement and put him in front of the voters. They would do it periodically. But I always got the feeling it was it was mostly because they. They felt like they had to periodically or people would wonder what the heck's going on. But but there was no sense uh, uh, from the Democrats that that even they believed that uh, that Joe Biden had any particular appeal to the voters. No. Uh, and, you know, if he becomes president, he will be a Potemkin president. He's someone who uh, is kept out of the public eye and is turned into a kind of mythical figure, a, you know, a, a family man who uh, you know lost a son to cancer, uh, lost a family to a, an awful car accident uh, many years ago. There's all this, you know, sort of sentimental image making around Joe Biden, and no one has really examined his actual agenda or what he thinks he can do as president. And I think a lot of Democrats on the left are going to be disappointed, not because Joe Biden won't be a left wing president, but because he won't be able to be as left wing as the, you know, sort of radical base of the Democratic Party wants. And of course, you have conservatives and Republicans really fighting mad over what happened with this election, over the way President Trump was treated by the media and by the tech companies. And they're looking to you know, express their frustration come the 2022 midterm elections, when historically, not only would you expect the uh, you know, president's party to lose seats, but you'll probably find that Republicans really have a, a tremendous sense of um, you know, revenge, to put to, uh, a fine point on it, uh, wanting to you know, sort of uh, take back uh, their honor after what has been done to them in this election of 2020. Yeah, I think that's right, Daniel. And, and it's really remarkable that... Um, the Republicans did as well as they did. They, we don't know how many net seats they will have picked up in the House, but it's probably going to be something like, uh, you know, eight to 10, I believe. They probably have held on to the Senate, although we knock on wood. We have the two runoff races in Georgia, but certainly there's there's good reason to, to favor the Republicans in those in those races. And, uh, you know, that suggests that what we're seeing from the voters is not any kind of enthusiastic endorsement of a left wing program. No. And in fact, uh, you know, Voters are, you know, maybe unhappy with the fact that not everything that the president wanted to accomplish in 2016 has been brought about. Uh, they're certainly, you know, they've been frightened by the COVID situation, by all the, you know, sort of uh, fear mongering emanating from the media. 
and there's you know a, an enormous recession that is you know even worse than what we faced uh, in 2007 and 2008. So it's understandable why voters would not have the degree of support for Donald Trump that we conservatives would have liked to have seen. But this uh, lack of support for, for Donald Trump is not necessarily the same thing as uh, enthusiastic support for whatever agenda the Democrats might want to put forward. And of course, throughout the 2020 campaign, as you noted, the Democrats really avoided talking about issues. They really just wanted to demagogue on COVID. They wanted to say all of the 200,000 deaths were the responsibility of Donald Trump. They didn't want to say what they would actually want to do if they had presidential power and power in Congress, except, of course, they, they fantasized about packing the court and doing other radical things, which, in fact, it looks as if the American people were repulsed by. And that's probably one reason why, why Republicans are in a, a good position to keep control of the Senate. Daniel, we're up against a break. Uh, we're going to go to some uh, messages and be back with you uh, after this. Is it love? Is it Listen, the more you'll know, this is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We are talking with uh, Daniel McCarthy, director of the Robert Novak Journalism Fellowship Program at the Fund for American Studies and editor of Modern Age, a conservative review. Daniel, before the break, we were talking about the 2020 election and the fact that the, the voters uh, don't, didn't really endorse Joe Biden, didn't really endorse uh, a Democratic Party program. Um, and and, and let's, let's, let's talk about that a little bit more, because as you started to suggest there before the break, the Democrats had in their back pocket a very radical agenda. If they take control of the Senate and have the votes – and they might need a couple of votes extra. Um, you know, their plan was to do away with the filibuster, um, pack the Supreme Court, uh, admit uh, two or more new states, uh, District of Columbia and Puerto Rico, solidly Democratic, legalize uh, 12 million or so illegal uh, aliens and give them the right to vote, and basically change the landscape so that it would be difficult or impossible for the Republicans ever to be in power again. Now, you know, that was their dream. Uh, at this point, do you think they've got any shot at, at making that reality? I really hope not. And it looks as if the numbers are not there for it. And not only are the numbers in the House and the Senate not there, the fact that they've lost seats in the House in this election is kind of an indication of just how unpopular this radical agenda is. But it seems to me that the American public has sent a pretty clear signal with this election that uh, the Democrats need to slow down. They need to stop, you know, thinking about these radical transformative policies because the public is not on board with them. And even as scared as the public may be with COVID, even as uncertain as Americans might be about what's going to happen with our economy, they're not in the mood for endorsing uh, this kind of revolutionary agenda that the Democrats wanted to put forward. If we assume, Daniel, that the Republicans do keep control of the Senate, certainly seems probable at this point, not certain. What, what position is Joe Biden going to be in? Now, you said that he's going to be one of the weakest presidents in a, in a long time. There are things that a president can do, of course, by executive uh, order. Uh, he can set the foreign policy agenda and so forth. Uh, and the kinds of things I've seen have been, for example, speculation that he's going to re re-enter the uh, Iran agreement. Uh, I, I saw uh, a report that he's going to name uh, Michael Mann of Penn State, the famous hockey stick climatologist, as his climate czar. And he was referred to, he'll, he'll be the Dr. Fauci of climate, which is kind of an appalling thought. But, but you know, how, how, much, how much damage can he really do with, with these kinds of executive uh, actions? 
Well, he can do a fair amount. Looking at these questions, looking at the Iran deal, looking at the attempt to sort of impose a Green New Deal, or at least elements of it by fiat, looking at, you know, an attempt to kind of internationalize climate politics and, you know, compromise American sovereignty. It's just really hard to imagine that any of these steps are going to increase the Democratic base of support going into the 2022 midterms in just two years' time. It seems as if all of these policies are things that the Democrats might try to sneak through on the American people, but that in fact are not really going to help them uh, and will in fact generate a very strong Republican reaction in the forthcoming midterm elections. It's always much harder to play defense in politics than it is to go on offense. Uh, you know, it's, it's relatively easier to criticize what's happening in Washington than it is to actually govern and to do things that uh, the American people find successful and worthy of support. And I think this is going to be the challenge facing Joe Biden if he becomes president, is that he doesn't have an agenda that's popular in the first place, and he doesn't really have the tools to make it successful, even to the extent that he wants to try to push it forward. And I think that's really, you know, sort of... Uh, uh, sowing and uh, about to reap the whirlwind uh, come the midterms. And then in the long run, it seems to me that while you may have a sort of um, uh, a, a economic bounce coming out of the COVID situation in 2021 or 2022, you're likely to have very tough times and some very hard decisions that have to be made as we get to 2024. And it seems as if the American economy really needs to be put on a stronger footing again. You know, one impression that I get, Daniel, is that this the whole, you know, Biden uh, at least what's, what we've heard about so far, a program is really backward looking. Uh, and it's like they turn the clock back, you know, to pre-Donald Trump. And a good example of that is talk about re, re-signing or re-engaging in the, in the Iran deal, which seems to me to be a completely moot point. Iran got our money. You know, they got our money from, uh, from Barack Obama and they're doing whatever they want in terms of nuclear weapon development. And, and I don't see any point at all in, in uh, re-engaging in that uh, Iran uh, agreement other than uh, as a kind of a repudiation of the Trump administration. But I don't know that that kind of backward-looking uh, program is, is going to have much appeal to the voters in 2022 or 2024. You know, when uh, Barack Obama left office, the Democrats, you know, had had uh, a relatively uh, good time during the Obama years. They lost the House, of course, in the first midterms, and then they lost the Senate in the second Obama midterms. Nevertheless, Barack Obama was a rather personally popular president. And in the Obama years, America didn't have anything like the 9-11 attacks. It didn't have the COVID crisis. They were relatively calm and placid years. And yet even so, Barack Obama was unable to hand the presidency over to his designated successor, uh, Hillary Clinton. The Obama uh, agenda, even to the extent that Obama had had eight years to implement it and perfect it, it just wasn't popular enough with the American people to carry on. And Donald Trump was a very strong repudiation of what Obama had done. Joe Biden now comes into office and he's completely looking backwards, as you said. He wants to you know, be Barack Obama's third term, but he doesn't have the cards that Barack Obama had. He doesn't have the personal charisma that Barack Obama had. And so it seems to me that just as the Obama agenda failed in 2016 and gave us Donald Trump, Joe Biden's attempt to resuscitate the Obama agenda between now and 2024 is also going to fail and is creating an enormous opportunity for Republicans in four years' time. Daniel, we have one minute left. I want to just put one issue on the table we haven't talked about, and that's immigration. You know, one thing that Joe Biden can do as president is, is do what Obama did in the last years of his administration and simply stop enforcing the immigration laws. And, uh, you know, there's all kind of, you know, they, they like to talk about children in cages or whatever. I, I, but, but I mean, is Biden actually going to stop enforcing the immigration laws? Uh, and if so, I, you know, I don't think that's going to be popular. What, what do you think? 
I think you're exactly right. Joe Biden, uh, you know, is going to take a very soft line towards illegal immigration and may try to legalize uh, a great many people in order to stack uh, more voters into the Democratic Party. But, you know, as we saw in uh, this election, even, uh, you know, many Hispanics whom liberals and leftists think are automatic Democrats and are automatically sympathetic to illegal aliens, uh, many uh, Hispanics, many Latinos are, in fact, uh, quite sympathetic to the Republican Party. They don't want to see people who are cheating in immigration uh, be given, uh, you know, a free pass for doing so. And they don't like the kind of socialist agenda that you see gaining momentum within the Democratic Party with Bernie Sanders and indeed with uh, many of the people that Joe Biden might appoint. So it seems to me that uh, Democrats, you know, who think that uh, uh, a soft line towards illegal immigration is the golden road to uh, monopolizing the Hispanic vote are in for a rude awakening. Daniel McCarthy, thanks for being on The Dan Prof Show. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Earlier in the program, I uh, said that assuming the Republicans keep control of the Senate, uh, when they reconvene in January, Mitch McConnell and the relevant uh, committee or committees ought to commission an extensive, thorough investigation into the 2020 election with a view toward really documenting and identifying the, the irregularities, the sloppy practices, and the outright fraud that we all know existed in this election. I think there's something else that maybe should be done, though, and something that doesn't have to wait, in fact, can't wait until, uh, until January. And that's a suggestion that a Powerline reader uh, emailed to me, and I wrote about on, on the Powerline website. I think it's an interesting idea. And that is the idea that Attorney General Bill Barr should appoint a special counsel to look into, to investigate the uh, 2020 election and, and crimes that may have been committed in connection with the 2020 election. Now, what would be the basis for that? Does that actually make sense? Well, I think it does. If you look at the special counsel statute, it says that uh, you can appoint or you should appoint a, a special counsel in a situation where an investigation or a prosecution, which is what we're talking about here, both investigation and prosecution, would prevent, present a conflict of interest for the Department of Justice or other extraordinary circumstances. Well, I think Bill Barr has got a good argument that it would be a conflict of interest for his Department of Justice to investigate voter fraud, which allegedly was being carried out by the Democrats, because he is a political appointee of a Republican president. Well, that's true. He's a political appointee. And so I think it's entirely uh, reasonable for Bill Barr to say, I shouldn't carry out this investigation because it could be it could be perceived and maybe rightly perceived as, as a conflict of interest for me to do it as a Republican political appointee. And then the only other standard in the special counsel statute is that under the circumstances, it would be in the public interest to appoint an outside special counsel to assume responsibility. And I think that's a very easy case to make, that this is something that needs to be investigated. Now, one obvious question is, hold on, a special counsel can only investigate federal crimes, not state crimes, and voter fraud in general is a state crime. That's true. 
However, uh, most of the things that can be done to perpetrate voter fraud also are going to constitute uh, wire fraud or mail fraud, which are federal crimes. And, um, and, and, and the equal protection theory, which was used by the, the Trump campaign in Pennsylvania, was approved in Trump v. Gore. So if, if valid votes are being diluted and canceled out by fraudulent votes, that's an equal protection violation. And so, and so there really is an adequate and a substantial predicate here for Bill Barr to appoint a special counsel to look into voter fraud of the 2020 election. And what's interesting about that is, let's assume now that Joe Biden becomes president, does his attorney general now have the courage to fire the special prosecutor? The Democrats have been telling us for many years, the worst thing you could possibly do is to fire a special counsel. I'm not sure they'd have the, the courage to do it. So that's another way that perhaps we can eventually get to the bottom of what, what went on in the 2020 election. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. And we are joined now by Declan Leary, Collegiate Network Fellow at the American Conservative. Declan, thanks for being on the Dan Proft Show. Thanks for having me, John. Declan, uh, you wrote a piece uh, at the American Conservative, uh, the title of which is No Surrender, At Least Not Yet. (laughs) And I couldn't agree with that theme more. Let's just talk a little bit about this post-election situation that we find ourselves in. Uh, on, on On all sides, people are demanding that Donald Trump concede the election, that everybody recognize that Joe Biden is our rightfully elected president, uh, et cetera. What, what do you make of this, of this rush, rush to judgment? Well, I think the fact that so many people are so quick and so eager to tell Donald Trump to concede is a very, very good indicator that Donald Trump should not concede. If they had no worries that it would all be sorted out and it would become clear that Biden had won this election fairly, you know, people would just let Trump do his thing. Um, It's that sort of old Obama line. uh, If you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to worry about. At the very least, we need to be pursuing every legal avenue, you know, looking at every allegation of fraud, um, verifying the evidence that the election officials and the media, the mainstream media, clearly aren't willing to verify. Because the one thing that we need to be hammering home every day until January is that this election just isn't over yet. Yeah, it seems to me there's two there's two separate questions here. One is the point you just made, it's not over. And the second is, what's the reality, at least as best we can figure it out, with respect to voter fraud and what could be done about it? But let's stick with the first one for the moment, uh, Daclan. Um, I, as far as I know, not a single state has yet certified a winner. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, and we've sort of decided that, you know, once the Associated Press and the New York Times calls it, then the election is over. Uh, But the Associated Press, um, which we tend to take as the the real authority on calling elections, had called Arizona for Biden on Tuesday night. Um, And it's looking pretty clear that 
Arizona is going to flip back to Trump when all votes are counted. Um, so there's no good reason why we should be putting all of our faith in these people to predict what's going to happen once everything shakes out. Well, there are several states, a number of states, I'm not sure how many, but a number of them where, where ballot counting is still going on, uh, number one. And, and then yeah. number two, of course, we have we have lawsuits that have been filed in, in several states. And, you know, I'm old enough, Declan, uh, to remember the 2000 election. And, um, you know, President uh, Bush uh, was ahead at every stage in the count. There was never a time when Al Gore actually was leading in, in Florida, which was the, the pivotal state at, at that time. And I don't remember any pressure from from this, the, the same usual suspects telling Al Gore, you got to concede. Actually, Al Gore did concede at one point and then he <laughs> took it back. Right. I don't remember the, all the pressure on Al Gore. Give it up. Don't litigate. You got to concede. Yeah, I mean, it's like I said um, at the beginning here, uh, the the eagerness to get him to succeed should tell us something. Um, a lot of it has to do with just the fact that they don't want Donald Trump to be president for another four years. And I think that's a much more important uh, motivator to what's going on than any sincere concern over the integrity of our elections. I want to talk about that election integrity in a little more detail here in a couple of minutes, uh, Daclan. But but one of the funny phenomena, uh, a peculiar phenomena that we're seeing right now is is the you know, hear no evil, see no evil posture of the mainstream media. I mean, it's kind of almost black comedy. You know, they 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 jump up and down and say there's no proof, there's no evidence, and they'll they'll have this ritual recitation. You know, Donald Trump asserted without evidence that there was voter fraud in Michigan <laughs> or whatever, and the evidence is piling up all around yeah. us, all around us. And of course, the last thing any of these people have any intention of doing is investigating themselves, you know, and yeah. to see whether there's evidence of voter fraud. I mean, they, they wouldn't dream of doing that. Yeah. I mean, like you said, it's funny in some sense, but it's also maddening. Um, you know, we're just, it's a little Orwellian. We're, we're just supposed to believe, you know, that there is no evidence line. Um, but you see, you know, election officials and poll watchers signing sworn affidavits saying they either witnessed malpractice or they were encouraged by supervisors to participate in malpractice. I mean, that's the evidence right there. And sure, you know, we have to agree we shouldn't be jumping to conclusions. We need to investigate. We need to validate. Um, and, you know, on the rare occasion that all the media says is unproven allegations, sure, we can agree with them. Nobody's saying that it's decided that this election was stolen from Donald Trump. But the preliminary evidence that justifies the investigation is absolutely there, and then some. Um, and, you know, the, the election officials, like you said, we can't trust them to investigate themselves um, because they're not exactly the most trustworthy people. I mean, you know, two of the states that are, are most, um, most important here in the outcome of the election or Pennsylvania and Michigan. Now, Pennsylvania's Attorney General, Josh Shapiro, announced on Twitter four days before the election that Donald Trump wasn't going to win Pennsylvania. Now, when the Attorney General of a state promises four days in advance a particular outcome election, that's not a prediction, that's a promise. And then the Secretary of State in Michigan, um, Jocelyn Benson, is an alumna of the Southern Poverty Law Center. 
which is a, a pretty far left and anti-conservative organization. So she certainly doesn't have a, a resume that inspires a whole lot of faith in integrity and impartiality. Well, the other thing, Natalie, will the election officials not investigate themselves? The, the mainstream media will not investigate them either. I mean, I'm so old, I can remember when there was such a thing as investigative journalism. But, but even today, Declan, I can assure you that if it was President Trump who was being called the winner by Associated Press, and if it was Joe Biden who was alleging uh, voter fraud in, in key states, uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, you know, the, the, the TV news networks and so on, they would have reporters crawling all over these states, interviewing uh, poll watchers and voters and digging up evidence of, of voter fraud. Absolutely. I think this past week was the final nail in the coffin of faith in the American media. Um, of course, you know, the investigative stuff, they're refusing to look at the evidence of voter fraud. Um, you know, they, the appearance of impartiality disappeared in the way they covered the president. Um, you know, even Fox News cutting away from uh, Press Secretary McEnany. Uh, and then just the clear double standards in the way they they cover, you know, the Biden so-called transition team and the way they've covered uh, President Trump for the past four years. Uh, people aren't going to put up with that for, for very long. No. So so earlier in the program, we talked a little bit about the situation both in Pennsylvania and in, and in Michigan. And along the lines of, well, there's no evidence, there's no proof. <laughs> they, you know, the, the uh, Ronna McDaniel, the uh, GOP chairwoman, did a press conference a few days ago in Michigan. She unveiled 131 affidavits and 2,800 incident reports documenting fraud and irregularities in the, in the election in Michigan alone. And she got done laying all this stuff out, backdating of ballots that arrived too late to be counted, poll workers encouraging voters to vote a straight Democratic ticket, going into voting booths with them to help them vote for Democrats. You know, <laughs> obviously illegal stuff. And when she got all done, the first question from a reporter is, do you know that fraudulent votes were actually cast? It's like you know, <laughs> there's a standard. There's a standard of proof here. It's almost uh, you know. It's like David Hume is covering the election, right? I mean, <laughs> nothing. Nothing can be known. Nothing can be proved. I mean, I've never yeah. seen anything like it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's as simple as the mask is coming off. Uh, all the media bias, the the rage at the the Trump years is sort of reaching a boiling point, and I think they're pretty clearly. Uh, they're convinced that they got the result they want. And they're going to make sure no evidence comes out to the contrary. In the, in the uh, Pennsylvania lawsuit, which I wrote about uh, last night in some detail on, on Powerline, uh, there are allegations that, as far as I know, are, are not denied among them. I think it's 670,000-some votes were, uh, mail-in votes were counted and verified uh, in violation of Pennsylvania law because Republican poll watchers were not allowed to be present and observe it, which is, re is required by law. And so in that lawsuit, they're actually asking, among other things, to have all of those uh, ballots, 672,000, some such number, um, disqualified and, and report the election without counting any of those ballots. We've got to run to a break, uh, Lachlan, but when we come back, I, I want to talk about where we go from here. In other words, uh, what practical remedies, if any, are there available to the Trump campaign? We'll be right back after this. Oh, oh, 
exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We're talking with uh, Daclan Leary, Collegiate Network Fellow at the American Conservative Jacqueline, before the break, we were talking about the fact that um, even though uh, our newspapers and TV networks want to blindfold themselves and plug their ears, fact is a lot of evidence is coming out of voter fraud in the 2020 election, both at the at the systemic level. uh, For example, what we saw in, in Pennsylvania and Michigan with Republican poll watchers being, you know, barred from the polls or or stationed far away where they couldn't see anything. And also the micro level this morning, the Trump campaign uh, sent out an email in which they identified a handful of dead people who allegedly voted in uh, in Georgia. And, and they had, uh, mm-hmm. you know, screenshots of their obituaries and so forth. You know, so so we see it at the micro level. We see it at the systemic or the macro level. But but my question to you, Declan, is, um, well, you and I agree that the Trump campaign should continue pressing its case in court. There's no reason to concede at this point. Is there a practical remedy? Is, do you see a, a, a pot of gold at the end of that litigation uh, rainbow? Uh, it's certainly an uphill battle. Um, and, you know, just following the, the mood of the campaign, it was looking uh, pretty dark, um, the last few days. And then yesterday, there seemed to be a sort of uptick in morale. Uh, there seemed to be a lot more confidence in the, the information that they're gathering and in their prospects. Um, so certainly, the campaign sees some cause for hope, um, though they do seem cautious. Uh, and at this point, it's it's impossible to disqualify anything. Uh, crazier things have happened. Um, but the margins seem to be growing in some key places, and it's going to be tough. Well, it seems to me, Lachlan, that one of the problems is that there's a lot of situations where you know there was fraud, uh, but, but, but you can't prove. I'll give you an example. We know in Georgia that dead people voted, right? Because the campaign yeah. has been identifying names and, and matching them up with obituaries. <laughs> and, okay. But, but how do you prove, you know, f- for whom that ballot was cast? Uh, if, if, if the person came to the polls in person and signed in as, as, you know, Joe Smith, the guy who died last year and, and was given a ballot and voted, there's no way to know who he voted for. Uh, if it was a write-in ballot, I think it depends on the state. It may or may not be possible to identify that particular ballot and say, aha, that was a that was a Joe Biden vote, and now we're going to subtract one from Joe Biden's total. <laughs> you know, it just it, if you have to prove ballot by ballot, um, you know, you just you can't get there. If it's a hundred votes, you know, you could you could get there, but 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 if you have to do it ballot by ballot, I mean, I just don't see any way. Uh, that that's going to turn out to be feasible, particularly in the time frame that we've got. I mean, am I am I missing something there? Yeah, I think I think that's true. Um, so I, I believe this best strategy is to focus on the systemic stuff um, more than the individual ballots. Um, you know, when we see vans and, and crates of ballots showing up um, at uh, counting and tabulation centers hours after the deadline. Um, 
and the the 672,000 ballots that you were talking about earlier in Pennsylvania, um, you know, when we see massive quantities of of hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands of fraudulent ballots or of questionable ballots, those are the ones that we need to be targeting. Um, And looking at the individual uh, obvious evidence of fraud is helpful just to show people that something is going on, but it's, it's probably not going to tip the electoral scales in our favor in the long run. And of course, the problem with, with focusing on the systemic uh, elements, which is where the numbers are, is so let's, let's, let's stay with the example of Pennsylvania. And I just looked it up. That number is 682,479 mail-in mm-hmm. and absentee ballots. This is according to the allegations in the, in the Trump complaint, but I don't think it's denied. Uh, those ballots were were vetted, uh, you know, they were investigated, they were approved and counted without the statutorily required uh, opportunity by the Rep- Republican poll watchers to, to verify that the that the ballots, one, are legitimate and two, are being correctly counted. So 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 the Trump campaign actually in their lawsuit has asked for all of those 682,000 ballots to be disqualified. I don't think there's any way in the world that any judge or any appellate court is going to go along with disqualifying the votes of 682,000 Pennsylvanians, the vast majority of which presumably uh, were were legitimate. I don't know, but I, I think one would assume that. Do you, do you see any possibility that a court would, would be willing to go along with that kind of... Um, with that kind of remedy? Um, like I said, I'm not going to disqualify anything. I think it's anything's possible at this point, but it's certainly unlikely. Um, and I, I expect especially Pennsylvania to go to the Supreme Court. Um, but one of the things I've been kind of harping on this past week is that, you know, even if we don't win legally, just as a political matter, it's important to have fought. Um, people are done with just laying down and, and taking defeat. Um, and, you know, whichever way the election goes, um, Trump's got to say he gave it his all, and the GOP has to say they gave it their all um, for any hope of success, at least in 2024. Well, Dak, I agree with that. Trump has been fighting for the last four years. There's no reason why I should stop now, you know, in the next two weeks. Uh, I, I agree. <laughs> should keep fighting. And another point that's very important is it's not like this is our last election, right? I mean, I think it's really yeah. critical. Voter fraud has been with us for a long time. I mean, I think, you know, mm-hmm. you go back to the Tammany Hall days. I mean, the Democratic Party has been living off voter fraud in urban areas they control for going on 150 years. And it's going to happen again. And I think one thing we really need to do is to shine the spotlight on what happened this year so that we can put serious pressure on the states, which is where the power lies, to clean up their voting procedures so it doesn't happen again. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of a lot of the people on the left are telling us that there's just no possible way any malpractice could have happened. There's no way um, widespread fraud could have gotten through um, our system. And of course, you know, setting aside the fact that these are the same people who told us for four years that Trump was put into office by Vladimir Putin, um, you know, we've we've seen pretty significant voter fraud for decades um, in all of the same places we're talking about, actually, you know, these, these democratic controlled big cities. Um, So it's not this, this crazy conspiracy. It's, it's a fairly established historical pattern. And even if we don't um, succeed in 
in keeping the White House for 2020, at least we'll have shed some light on, on that pattern. Yeah, I mean, Philadelphia, just to name one example, has long been renowned for voter fraud. There have been, there have been uh, cycles where it's been pretty obvious that when there are no Republicans around, the Democrats in the, in the polls will just get a bunch of blank ballots and run them through the machine right up to the level of uh, registered voters in the precinct, even though some of those registered voters have died or moved away or what have you. 100% turnout, and it's you know 98% Democrats. So as you say, this is, this is something that's been going on for a while, and maybe some good will come out of this if we can really put the spotlight on the critical issue of election integrity, lest the United States of America turn into a banana republic. Declan Leary, thank you for being on the Dan Prof Show. Thank you, John. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline filling in for Dan tonight. And in this segment, I want to talk about um, the election that is that, that really remains uh, in, in, in 2020 or 2021. Uh, vitally important, uh, and and um, and all eyes uh, in the country are going to be on Georgia for the next couple of months as as the two runoff elections are fought out in that state, and um, and the Senate is really balanced on on a knife's edge. Uh, the Republicans have uh, fifty seats, and the Democrats have forty eight seats, and um, if the Democrats were to win both of these runoff elections, and uh, the candidates, the Republicans there are David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler. If the Democrats were to win both of those runoff elections, the Senate would be tied at 50-50. And if we assume that President Trump's uh, election challenges will fall short and that Joe Biden will be the next president, uh, that would mean that uh, Kamala Harris would return to her old stomping grounds in the Senate as vice president and would be in a position to break ties. How important is that? Well, it's vitally important for a lot of reasons. Uh, if the Republicans control the Senate, uh, they've got to check on Joe Biden's nominations. They can slow walk his nominations uh, like uh, the Democrats did with uh, President Trump, even when they were in a minority uh, they can block a lot of uh, obnoxious uh, nominations. Uh, they can they can prevent legislation, including budget legislation, which can't be filibustered. Um, and and it's going to be very difficult for Joe Biden uh, to get much done, and certainly to get anything done legislatively if if the Republicans actually control the Senate. And Mitch McConnell, cocaine Mitch, who's been doing a terrific job, if he if he continues to um, be the Senate Majority Leader. On the other hand. If the Democrats were to take over the Senate, uh, they have made no bones about it. They've got a radical agenda. Chuck Schumer has said, first we take Georgia, take Georgia like he's General Sherman, you know, and and then we're going to we're going to remake America. You know, they're gonna, they're, they're, then then the radical activity begins. And what he's talking about, what the Democrats have been quite open about, if they if they have the votes in the Senate is uh, number one, they break the filibuster, uh, get rid of the filibuster rule. Number two. 
they pack the Supreme Court. Uh, they create two new judgeships, uh, maybe four, and uh, they appoint uh, either two or four uh, radical left-wing judges, justices. Uh, and the next thing they do is they admit the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico as new states, which will bring about four new Democratic senators. I didn't even realize this. They can do that by legislation. I always thought you needed a, a vote of the existing states before you could add new ones. Not true. Not true. If they control the House and the Senate and Joe Biden is the president, they can admit as many states as they want. And their plan, if they have the votes, is to is to admit at least two that is district of columbia and uh, and puerto rico and then the next thing they would do is is legalize 12 million or so illegal immigrants and give them the right to vote and after that they would pass all kinds of left wing legislation green new deal you name it but but the first thing that they want to do is to change the political landscape to make to make structural changes such that the republicans will never again control the national government. That's what they want to do. So that's how important the runoff elections in Georgia are going to be. And I'm optimistic that the Republicans, Purdue and Leffler, are probably going to win both of those races. Uh, and here's why. Number one, in both of those uh, uh, races, the Republican or Republicans got significantly more votes than their Democratic opponents. Uh, Purdue almost got to 50%. He just barely fell short. Uh, if he got to 50%, there would have been no runoff. But but he was well ahead of his Democrat opponent. Uh, and, and, and Kelly Loeffler uh, actually was not the first place finisher, but that was because she had a challenger on the Republican side. She was an appointed senator. But if you add the Republican votes together, and her challenger is now enthusiastically supporting her candidacy, again, the Republicans got quite a few more votes than the Democrat in in the first uh, in the first round, so so that obviously is is, is positive. The other reason why I think uh, the Republicans are probably going to win those races is because there's a lot of voters who like divided government. There's a lot of voters who say, well, you know what? If 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 Joe Biden is going to be the president, and by January we'll know that one way one way or the other, you know, I'd like to see the Republicans uh, control something. You know, control the control the Senate. And so I think uh, the, the, the fans of divided government, a lot of whom are independents, are going to tend to vote Republican. And finally, I, I don't think there's going to be a significant amount of voter fraud when they do their runoff election. Everybody's going to be looking at Georgia. There's going to be Republican poll watchers all over the place. The Democrats are going to be on their best behavior. I don't think they're going to be able to get away with a lot of dead people voting as they did uh, uh, this, this month in November. And so I'm optimistic that we're going to see continued Republican control of the United States Senate. Listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. And we are joined now by Jeremy Stalnecker, a U.S. Marine Corps infantry officer, Iraq War veteran, a winner of the Navy Condemnation Medal with a V for Combat Valor, and the co-founder of the Mighty Oaks Foundation. Jeremy, thanks so much for being on the Dan Proft Show. Thanks for having me. 
Well, Jeremy, first of all, uh, thank you for your service, which is obviously, uh, you know, obviously very distinguished. Um, and we, we really appreciate that. Today is Veterans Day. You know, I'm curious to get your thoughts, uh, Jeremy. Veterans Day seems to me like something that's kind of waxed and waned over the years. I think it was originally in commemoration of World War One, if I remember correctly. And I think, you know, sure. we went through kind of an anti-military period there in the 60s and 70s. And seems to me like that's that's kind of turned around again. What, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. As we look back, you know, even to the Vietnam War and everything that took place after that for our veterans and so many of those folks who felt like they needed to hide their service and, and didn't want to remember it or express it in any way. We really have come, I think, 180 degrees where now... The United States, by and large, not everyone, of course, but by and large, is uh, is very grateful for the service of our veterans. And, and what's interesting is over nearly 20 years of war in Afghanistan, which is crazy, public opinion about the war has changed. But as someone who has lived through that period, I was in Iraq in 2003 during the initial invasion. So having been there, at least in Iraq, in the beginning and, and watched you know, men and women come home and with the work that we do with veterans, even though opinion has changed the wars, really the reception of Americans to our veterans and uh, our service members has been been strong and great. And most communities are very, uh, very happy to, to honor those. And so it really is a good thing. I think we've learned a lot of lessons from that Vietnam area in particular. Yeah, I think you're exactly right, Jeremy. Whatever people might think about strategy or tactics or a particular conflict, they don't take it out on the on the on the individual military personnel and veterans. No, they don't. And really, this is what's important to me as I consider Veterans Day. I know, you know, every day I work with veterans. Um, <laughs> I know thousands of veterans. I served in the Marine Corps. I, I don't personally know anyone who went into the military so they could come home and people would say, thank you for your service. Veterans are happy when someone acknowledges their service. And, and we're always happy to hear that, of course. But to me, the more important thing about Veterans Day is communities, the public, those who haven't served but are enjoying the freedoms that men and women for generations have, have purchased for them, the importance of a day like this is remembering that. So even as we go through a crazy election cycle like the one we're right in the middle of right now and all the stuff we've been talking about over this year, we cannot forget the cost of freedom. And, you know, not to get off topic, I think some people have. And that's why we're dealing with some of the things we are, because we don't understand really what it costs to secure the freedoms that we enjoy. But when communities, when our country does understand men and women, real people had to go to places they would never go and do things they would never do so that um, the world's enemies would stay away and we would be able to live out the life that uh, our Constitution you know, demands that we live, really, and, and secures for us. Uh, that's a very, very important thing. That's why a day like this is so important. We're talking with Jeremy Stolnicker. Jeremy, you are a co-founder of the Mighty Oaks Foundation. Tell our listeners about, about that foundation and its work. Sure. The Mighty Oaks Foundation, we are a faith-based nonprofit, and we exist to serve veterans, active duty service members, uh, many folks in the first responders community now. There's a lot of crossover there, as well as spouses and family members. And uh, we do our best to help those who are dealing with trauma, either related to combat or just their military or uh, uh, first responder service, and help them to move forward. We know that more than 20, uh, we're told, veterans a day end their life. Um, on the active duty side, the number is closer to four over the last several months. That's gone up significantly. Um, the first responder community, many of the same problems. And so we as veterans, as those who have served, uh, do our best to engage with those who are struggling with those problems and help them to move forward in that. 
And we've seen tremendous success. We've seen about 4,000 folks come through one of our week-long programs over the last several years. We speak to uh, literally tens of thousands of folks a year on active duty uh, on bases and through, you know, the active duty, active duty unit events. And uh, we've been blessed to see some good things happen there. Uh, we cover all of the costs, so there's no cost to the service member who would attend. And uh, we just want to do our best to, to get the help to them. And, and thankfully, we've been able to do that. Uh, Jeremy, I've seen some, some headlines recently about suicide rates among veterans, and you just referred to a, a statistic or two there. But let's let's go back on that and make sure that sinks in. I mean, what, what are we seeing in terms of uh, – is, is there an uptick, or what, what what's happening there? Well, we have traditionally been told that the veteran suicide number is 22 a day, and there are organizations that tie that number to their name. Uh, the most recent – a study from the VA this last year told us that that number is closer to 20. It has gone up from uh, 12 or 15 uh, back in 2015 to where we are today. So it continues to rise. Maybe it's pulled back a little bit. Anecdotally, I think it's probably much higher than that. Uh, one of the numbers that is concerning, and, that, and that's a, an incredible number. I mean, we think about that's an appalling uh, again, number, have, Jeremy. I'm shocked. Yeah. I'm shocked at that. I think that that's that's an appalling number. And to put it in context, and this is what's very important for us to do, is to put it in context. Every hour of every day of the year, someone who has served is taking their life. And when we think about that, you know, when the president stands up, as he did several months ago, and talks about his prevents task force, we're going to do whatever we have to to end veteran suicide. A uh, bill was recently passed through the Senate, S-785, to deal with treatments outside of the VA. These are very important measures that are being that are, that are taking place. So that's on the veteran side. On the active duty side, we've long been told the numbers about one a day. Recently, the most recent report, again from last year, said it's almost four a day. The Department of Defense put out a uh, study uh, a few weeks ago, about a month ago, I guess now, that said during this COVID period, active duty suicides have gone up 20%. The United States Army said that their rate has gone up 30%. The Air Force is holding steady year over year. But last year, 2019, was the worst year for suicides of active duty um, airmen in 35 years. So we're in a bad place in relationship to the mental health of our uh, service members and veterans, for sure. Uh, that's really interesting, Jeremy, and very sad. If our listeners want to support your work at the Mighty Oaks Foundation, where should they go? They should go to mightyoaksprograms.org, mightyoaksprograms.org. We're doing our best to confront all of those things that I just mentioned head on. We've seen great success. Again, there is no cost to the person who attends. We'll even uh, cover the cost of travel to get them there. We want to remove every obstacle to getting as much help as possible. MightyOaksPrograms.org. Jeremy Stalnecker, thank you so much for being on the program, and thank you again for your service. No, thank you. I appreciate it. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Last thing I want to talk about on today's show is one of the most disturbing trends that have come out of the 2020 election, and that is what my partner on Powerline, Paul Mirangoff, has referred to as the neo-Leninism of some in the Democratic 
party. What we're seeing here is a, a really un-American effort to punish people who have been involved in the Trump administration, lawyers who have represented the Trump administration, and so forth. And let's start with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, maybe the leading neo-Leninist of the moment, who asked on Twitter, is anyone archiving these Trump sycophants for when they try to downplay or deny their complicity in the future, their complicity, that is, serving the American people as members of the Trump administration. So that started generating some replies, and one of them came from Michael Simon, who was a member of the Barack Obama administration, and he tweeted that, oh, yes, someone is indeed doing that. They've set up something called the Trump Accountability Project. He says, yes, we are. The Trump Accountability Project is doing this. Every administration staffer, campaign staffer, bundler, lawyer who represented them, everyone. Their names are all being recorded. They're all being put on a list. Well, what kind of a list is this? What are they trying to do to these people? Well, among other things, they're trying to make sure that they never again get a job. And this is really scary stuff. I've never seen anything like this in American politics. So so someone named Harry Savugan, who is the uh, former press secretary for the Democratic National Committee. Again, these are random nobodies on Twitter. These are important representatives of the, of the Democratic Party. This is a former DNC press secretary. He stated, quote, employers considering hiring Trump White House staffers should know there are consequences for hiring anyone who helped Trump attack American values. In other words, hire any of these people and we're coming after you. Emily Abrams, who's a Democratic Party operative, she tweeted, we're launching the Trump Accountability Project to make sure anyone who took a paycheck to help Trump undermine America is held responsible for what they did. Join us and help spread the word. Jennifer Rubin, who's an online columnist for the Washington Post, pretends to be a former Republican. And, and again, you know, this is, this is flat-out Leninism. She writes, Any Republican now promoting rejection of an election or calling to not follow the will of the voters or making baseless allegations of fraud. In other words, anyone who thinks that this election isn't over yet, and in fact there was voter fraud, she says those people should never serve in office, never join a corporate board, never find a faculty position or be accepted into polite society. We have a list. And finally, Jake Tapper of CNN, same thing. Uh, future employers may want to know who didn't react very well to defeat, so you'd better stop contesting the result of this election. This is Leninism. Uh, this is un-American, and this is coming from important figures in the Democratic Party, and we've got to fight it. That's all for tonight. I'm John Hinderocker. Thanks for listening to The Dan Prof Show. This is the Dan Proft Show.